Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Morning Report podcast supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation. I'm Daniel Ennis, and today I will be co-presenting a case with Stefan Voyer. We're joined today by Drs. Barry Casson, Janet Simmons, and Lawrence Chow, with, I guess, Thomas was going to make a guest appearance, but is now on call somewhere in the hospital. So we'll miss him today. So this was a case that Steph and I saw together in 2014, while I was in my second year of residency. And it's about a gentleman, Mr. G. So he's a 37-year-old gentleman with a history of DeGeorge syndrome. And he's referred for sepsis NYD. And I'll talk a little bit about DeGeorge syndrome in a moment. But his other past medical history includes hypothyroidism, OSA, and he's on CPAP for that. And he's had gallstones with cholecystectomy. Now, as manifestations of his DeGeorge syndrome, he has a number of issues, cleft lip, cognitive impairment, schizophrenia, hypothyroidism, hypoparathyroidism with hypocalcemia, that's chronic, and a tetralogy of fellow repaired at age five. And his ejection fraction as of maybe a a year or so before was about 50% with some RV enlargement. We'll come back to DeGeorge syndrome a little bit later in the case. But those were his manifestations as known by his doctors. So he is on a number of medications that you'll want to know about. So he's on citalopram, clozapine, risperidone, thyroid replacement, loxapine, and quetiapine are both used as needed for agitation and for sleep. He has no allergies. And in terms of his social history, he's currently living in a group home. His parents are very involved in his life, and he has two siblings who are healthy. There's no history of smoking, alcohol, or recreational drug use. And the only family history of relevance is that his father had a lymphoma diagnosed in 2005. But otherwise, there's nothing inherited in the family. So he was well until August of 2013. And at that time, he develops onset of these recurrent fevers. They're associated with chills, sweats, really profound malaise, poor appetite, and weight loss. And importantly, these sweats were really drenching sweats, kind of the way that when we're asking about B symptoms, these are the ones that we're really looking for. So he had legitimate sweats. So he presented to a hospital for assessment. And there he was admitted for about two weeks where he had a very broad workup. So he was pan-cultured. He was checked for C. diff because he did have some diarrhea. He was HIV negative, hepatitis negative. He had a mild normocytic anemia without a clear cause. They did nasopharyngeal swabs, which were negative. He had a chest x-ray that showed some mild mediastinal lymphadenopathy, and that was felt to be likely reactive secondary to some kind of viral infection, which was the walking in the door diagnosis for him. He had a follow-up CT, which said essentially the same thing, mild mediastinal lymphadenopathy. He was initially managed with broad-spectrum antibiotics, which were then stepped down to oral antibiotics, and his symptoms seemed to resolve. So he was discharged from hospital feeling generally well. No recurrent fevers at that point. So despite completing his course of antibiotics, actually even towards the end of the course of antibiotics, which I believe they wanted him to stay on for two weeks after they started, just towards the end, he started having recurrent fevers with no clear periodicity, and again with the chills, sweats, weight loss, malaise, and poor appetite. So he then presents in November 
So a couple months later, at to hospital in the emergency room, he is tachycardic at 110, but regular uh, rate and rhythm. He's tachypnic at 22 breaths per minute. He's febrile at 39 degrees. He has a low blood pressure for him, which was 98 over 50. And his oxygen saturation is 98% on one liter nasal prongs. And he's referred for, to CTU for recurrent sepsis NYD. So a little bit more physical exam. He actually appears quite unwell. He's diaphoretic, um, but his GCS is 15. Cardiac exam revealed a crescendo-decrescendo murmur at the left upper sternal border, but no radiation elsewhere. His JVP was flat. He had no lymphadenopathy detected in the neck, axilla, or groin. He had mild crackles at both bases. His abdominal exam was entirely benign with no masses or hepatosplenomegaly that we could detect. He had a normal neurologic exam and uh, neck moved well. There were no findings of relevance on his MSK exam. And on skin exam, he had an erythematous rash around the groin with some satellite lesions. And in terms of his initial investigations, just to summarize them, he again demonstrated a normocytic anemia at 93, lymphopenia at 0.3, no anion gap, normal renal and liver function. Pan cultures were all sent. He had a chest x-ray and abdominal x-ray, which were actually normal. And he had an ECG that showed early repolarization, but really nothing else. So we'll pause right there. Um, and I'd like to know what you did, what you would do for this case before I tell you what was done for him initially in hospital. So I'll open that up to the floor. Oh, gosh, this is, this is a challenging case. I mean, this gentleman's obviously had recurrent fevers previously treated for suspected sepsis and now coming in. And I guess my first question is thinking, is this a manifestation of his first presentation? Um, as a recurrent manifestation, or is this a separate issue that's not related at all to his first presentation? When I think about somebody with recurrent fever, um, I think about the most common causes, which would include uh, an underlying infectious cause, um, an autoimmune disorder, or a malignancy. And being young, and having a congenital syndrome, I look at what his underlying risk factors are for any of these diseases. And the thing that stands out to me right now is that he has congenital heart disease and subacute endocarditis is high on the list for underlying infection. So that would be at least one route that I would be looking at. And then based on his prior investigations, metastinal lymphadenopathy raises the question of underlying malignancy in a young person, hematologic malignancies like lymphoma. That would be another pathway that I would head down. Other than that, the classic sepsis panel and see what comes back. Yeah, it's it's made particularly challenging by the fact that this is, like you said, the second presentation. So do you rewrite that whole book that was done on the first admission? Um, or do you say, okay, well, we tried antibiotics, it's obviously not the cause, and try to move on to more of the weird and wonderful. So looking at the DeJore syndrome, um, I believe there's some um, immune, I, I might be wrong, but I think there's some um, immune problems with the DeJore syndrome, so autoimmune or, um, or 
um, immunodeficiencies, so thinking about more kind of weird and wonderful viruses or even commonplace viruses that might be presenting atypically, like EBV or CMV. And then, of course, the malignancy, uh, for which he also uh, has the underlying risk factors. I mean, obviously, I agree you have to think about the um, endocarditis. I don't know, on the first admission, you know, if the echo and everything had been done, um, so it doesn't sound like there's any positive blood cultures on the first admission, as far as we can tell, but we would just had we had just empirically treated him at that time for something bacterial. Yeah, so I kind of agree. Fever happens to all of us. Um, history and genealogy, I think, are the most important components that I think we can look at with him. Um, he lives in a group home, so I'd want to find out more information about the group home and where he lives. I'd want to find out if he was exposed to any uh, previous infections, specifically tuberculosis, and maybe from his group home. I think it's important to, to look at his family history. I think the history of lymphoma. Certain lymphomas um, have a predisposition to for families. Um, and I think the other aspect is that most of us aren't familiar with the Georgia syndrome as something that we see on a regular basis. And I don't say that facetiously. I mean, there are, I suppose, are physicians that would see this. But I'd familiarize myself with, again, the aspects of the Georgia syndrome uh, before I, I embarked on a, a total uh, investigation. And I think finally, um, Anytime we see anybody that presents with fever and, and a low blood pressure, which is how he presented, I think the differential is the one we're talking about and probably a wider differential, but I think treating him for sepsis is what all of us would do. Do you all agree with that? Would you all start treatment for sepsis? Yeah, I think so. I agree. Yeah, I mean, he meets service criteria and we're assuming with the fever that uh, you know, there's a source of infection. So I don't think I don't think you could defend not starting fluids and antibiotics and managing as sepsis while considering all your other options. The other thing I was just thinking, Danny, is is you know I, I on and off took care of this person for months uh, around this year. I didn't realize it was 2014. Like it's a long time ago um, for me anyway. Not for Barry. That's yesterday for Barry. But uh, you know, I, I have like po- uh, the the other PTSD. I have post therapeutic stress disorder. Like just hearing this case again. I've like brought back to all the anxiety that that I had when I was trying to take care of this person. The one thing that I guess stood out for me as I heard the story again is is the combination of medications that he's on. He's on clozapine, which I think we all know causes a granulocytosis. And and although his cell counts, I guess, were probably normal, like that's a thing that I hadn't appreciated previously. Plus, he's on a combination of antipsychotics, including quetiapine, loxapine, and risperidone. Which, you know, all together, like, it certainly makes me wonder whether he, he could have had a side effect from his, his antipsychotics um, that maybe I hadn't, I hadn't really noticed or realized that or thought about that previously. Absolutely. So um, definitely in all, some of the articles that we'll reference later on in the presentation, drug fever is actually, like, listed as, like, a relatively common cause of persistent fever. But I think I probably have generally under-recognized that. Or maybe we really don't see, hard to say, but it feels like I didn't see a lot of that in hospital. Or maybe because it's so hard to prove that that's what someone has, especially when someone's sick in hospital, we really push that so far down the list that it it, it falls off. But I think you're right to bring that up because there's a lot of medication interactions that we need to worry about. Okay, 
Um, so we'll carry on with the case. So in hospital, um, the admitting physicians agreed with all of you, so they started broad-spectrum antibiotics for suspected sepsis NYD. Uh, no additional initial imaging is done overnight, and he actually defervesces by morning. However, in hospital, he has ongoing recurrent febrile episodes. They're always associated with rigors, almost always associated with drops in his blood pressure, increased respiratory rate, sometimes drops in his SATs, and tachycardia. The episodes are typically nocturnal, so always after everyone's gone home for the day and there's some poor resident covering the ward overnight who doesn't know what to do with this guy. Uh, he's typically restarted on antibiotics, which were typically discontinued in the morning. There were no new localizing signs or symptoms. So the question that we all struggled to answer was, is he responding to antibiotics or is he defervescing on his own? Because we felt that that would be diagnostically valuable to know one way or another if the antibiotics were helping. So how do you think you would approach that problem? Actually, we have a bit of a, uh, a guide to approach that problem. And this is, we're now in 2019 and wasn't available, at least the discussion wasn't available uh, in a journal form until in the last few weeks. In the New England Journal of Medicine in the last two weeks, a case was presented, not dissimilar from this, it wasn't the Georgia syndrome, but a case trying to make the case for a patient who potentially had sepsis syndrome, recognizing that fever was the presentation. And the discussion was the pros and cons of, of antibiotic uh, at presentation. And two authors presented different views on whether one saying that they would not start antibiotics unless a certain criteria were met, and the other author approaching the case as possible sepsis and recognizing that antibiotics um, in sepsis, uh, there's, there's a significant uh, morbidity if you delay the use of antibiotics. So it's actually quite interesting to, to read that. I, I think that I would not, having read that and listened to this case, I would do the same thing every time, and I think that I would treat with the antibiotics and treat as sepsis because I think the morbidity of not treating, the mortality of not treating, and the downside of using antibiotics is, I think, uh, overwhelms my decision to, to continue to use it. So, But it's just interesting that that was just a discussion. Although so I think the, the flip side of that is, so sepsis in my mind is like roughly speaking, signs of infection or surge criteria, which this guy had, tachycardia and right. fever, with a presumed focus of infection. Right. But this man did not have that. He did not have a focus of infection. And so we were, I think, every night treating fever and tachycardia without a focus. So, I mean, I, given that he was in hospital and you presumably did, you know, you pan-cultured and, and did everything... It's, it's not the same as he just presents with fever, hypertension, and tachycardia. Obviously, I would put antibiotics on that gentleman. But a couple of days later, when you've done the full workup in hospital and you haven't found a source of bacterial infection, then I, I think the question gets a lot muddier. And I've, I've encountered a similar situation where we were querying drug fever versus occult infection, but the drug that we thought was causing the fever was the piptazo. Right. So then you even have more reason to want to try to avoid that antibiotic and just sort of white knuckle it through the patient's fever overnight. And it is a bit I mean, it's obviously scary for the resident on call 
And logistically, it can be difficult when we have different people covering every evening. Um, but we actually left strict instructions for like two nights in a row, do not restart the Piptezo. And this, in my case, at least the, the fever did not recur. So it, you do have to take the leap of faith sometimes um, ooh, with all necessary caution, having ruled out within reason all potential sources of bacterial infection, I think. Uh, I would agree. If we only had Piptezo, <laughs> then it's a binary decision. But since we have multiple other antibiotics, uh, I think you can still achieve what you want, and mm -hmm. that's stopping the, the potential offending agent and not uh, and not uh, ignoring mm -hmm. the treatment. And, and I, I think that uh, it'd, be, you'd, it'd be very hard-pressed to see someone who's hypotensive, febrile, diaphoretic, and having rigors Case, and yeah. and you're the one that's called to see him, whether he's in hospital or in, uh, it doesn't matter where he is, and say, I think we'll just let it go right now. Fair so enough. So I think that it's, I, I think I would still do the same thing over and over again. And, and that that's what I was going to say. I was going to, let's say, let's take the perspective of the poor resident on overnight who's seeing the patient who is a few years in their training and is not going to have the fortitude to not treat this patient overnight unless they were given very specific instructions. But if I was that resident overnight, my decision tree is, is this somebody who has sepsis syndrome or is this somebody who has a fever? Because treatment of an isolated fever without a bit of hypotension, without the tachycardia is very different. And I am much more comfortable watching that, especially when the diagnosis is unclear, than somebody who has a bit of hypotension and is looking septic in front of me, I'm not comfortable not treating that patient, even if this is the recurrent event every night. And so, so we're, we're saying that we're not comfortable saying that this is not a bacterial infection to the point where it sounds like everyone in the room would keep doing the antibiotics every time he had a fever. So what other where else is the bacterial infection hiding, I guess, is the next question. If, if you're not convinced you've satisfactorily ruled out bacterial infection, uh, where else can we go looking? Yeah, I think that's a good. I think if we let Danny go on here, I think he's able to address okay. some of the things that have been brought up in the last couple of minutes. All right. So you're right. We and we'll, So we'll cover some of that content and then we'll come back to the case. So just to summarize, this is a 37-year-old gentleman with DeGeorge syndrome with without any known immunodeficiency, as you brought up, presenting with recurrent fever, constitutional symptoms, hemodynamic decompensation, bicytopenias, and there was the groin rash at the beginning. It's unclear whether he's responding to antibiotics or not. Investigations so far are nonspecific, and they failed to identify any source of infection, malignancy, or inflammation. So uh, at this point in his care, we defined him as fever of unknown origin. And I think that takes a little bit of unpacking, which we'll come to in a minute. Let me fill in some knowledge gaps around DeGeorge syndrome, because I, I was really surprised to find out that this is the most prevalent microdeletion syndrome in the USA at one in about four to 6,000. So actually not that rare. So it's a congenital syndrome characterized by a constellation of signs and symptoms caused by heterozygous chromosomal deletion of the 22Q11, Gene. Uh, the clinical picture is typically a triad of cardiac abnormalities, hypoplastic thymus, and parathyroid hypoplasia. The diagnosis is made by reduced CD3 positive T cells combined with either the characteristic clinical findings 
or the chromosome deletion. Prognosis-wise, life expectancy if you have complete thymic aplasia is actually really short. It's less than a year. Life expectancy with complete thymic aplasia and a bone marrow transplant is about 70% at a year. But overall, it's a pretty heterogeneous uh, population due to differences in penetrance. And so the acronym that you might remember from med school or residency or from me saying it right now is CATCH-22, which is the cardiac abnormalities, abnormal facies, thymic hypoplasia, cleft palate, hypocalcemia, parathyroidism, and thyroidism, and 22 for the 22Q11 deletion. And so importantly, um, this disease is associated with a number of autoimmune conditions, so autoimmune cytopenias, arthritis, enteropathy, thyroid disease. It's also associated with severe combined immune deficiency, uh, which actually portends a really poor prognosis in those who have it. But it also has variable degrees of immune deficiency, which, Janet, is what you were actually getting at earlier on. You were remembering that. So with that in the background, we have to move on to the question of fever of unknown origin. So the definition has definitely evolved, but it was initially categorized in 1961 by Petersdorf and Beeson as a temperature greater than 38.3 on at least three occasions, lasting longer than three weeks, with uncertain diagnosis despite a week of in-hospital evaluation. Now, obviously, techniques for investigating these things have changed, and more modern definitions don't require you to be in hospital, but they still keep fairly similar criteria. Some of the new ones include that the patients aren't immunocompromised, so no persistent neutropenia, no history of HIV, no hypogammaglobulinemia, uh, or high doses of prednisone. And the diagnosis has to be uncertain despite a history, a physical exam, and typical investigations. And I was a bit surprised at some of the items on this list. So some won't surprise you, like a CBC, electrolytes, kidney function, an SPEP, liver functions, and uh, liver enzymes, three blood cultures, an HIV test, hepatitis serology, and in some places they actually suggest doing CMV, Q fever. Most guidelines that I saw suggested doing an autoimmune workup that includes an ANA, rheumatoid factor, inflammatory markers, checking their urinalysis uh, and urine cultures, and then a TB skin test with some additional imaging. And that could be a chest x-ray, abdominal ultrasound, or CT scans of those areas. And there's some great papers worth reading by Bleeker Rover in medicine in 2007 or 2015, and Murad and Detsky, Archives of Internal Medicine, 2003. So the epidemiology around these issues has changed substantially uh, from the 1950s, where the most common cause was infection, to uh, these days where the most common cause is unknown diagnosis. And actually, infection is uh, making up maybe the third or fourth on the list of most common causes. And you've all started to get at what are the most common causes, because that's how you're probably going to start approaching this patient. And so you've divided it into the categories of malignancy, infection, inflammatory disease, other, and um, a category that I think I always forget, but is actually worthy of remembering is DVT and PE, which can certainly cause fever, but typically we would expect them to cause other symptoms as well. So just to rhyme off a couple things on this list that I think you were all thinking of, lymphoma, renal cell carcinoma, 
bacterial endocarditis, intra-abdominal abscess, TB, stills, PMR, drug fever, cirrhosis, DVT, PE. And then as you move into the list of other less common causes, you get into really interesting, unusual diagnoses, including a staph favorite, Whipple's. So in terms of prognosis, uh, it really depends on what disease category you fit into. If you have malignancy as the cause of your fever, the survival rate at five years is about 50 to 100, sorry, uh, is somewhere around 50%. If your diagnosis is infection, about 8 to 22% mortality in that population. And if you don't know the diagnosis, actually 50 to 100% actually just resolve on their own. So that's probably the best category to be in. And that's the one that we have most commonly these days. So I think once you get through all those things, so I don't think I've said anything mind-blowing, but then when you get to like the second tier tests, it becomes a lot less clear what to do. Do you do, if you had access to these things, PET scan, white blood cell scan, gallium scans? Are you going to do any random biopsies? Echo is, of course, on the list. Temporal artery biopsy. Uh, I think once you get into that area of you really don't know what it is, but it's clear the person is sick, it actually becomes really hard to tell. Uh, There are a couple recommended tests um, that I'll tell you about before we get back to the case and some diagnostic yields that go along with that. So in patients who have had that baseline workup that I described, but still have a fever of unknown origin, here are some tests. Abdominal CT has a diagnostic yield of about 19%, and I think that's a pretty common test that most people are going to use. Technetium scan has a positive likelihood ratio of somewhere between 6 and 12. A white blood cell scan, positive likelihood ratio of 3.2. A liver biopsy, blind liver biopsy, diagnostic yield of 15%. Temporal artery biopsy in patients over 50 has a yield of 16% and leg Dopplers of somewhere around 6%. One test that everyone thinks about is a bone marrow biopsy. And at least according to some of the studies that I looked at, the actual diagnostic yield of a bone marrow biopsy in this context is super low. It's between 0 and 2%. So I think some of those tests were surprisingly helpful when I didn't think they would be. You know, sorry, Dan, when you're, when you're giving the, what, where's this information from? Uh, this, much of this comes from a systematic review article. With the patient population being in North America or in Europe or in Africa or in the Middle East, where? Uh, I don't have that on hand. I'm not sure about that. Okay. It's simply because I think that those, those, Percentages would change significantly depending on what part of the world we were in. And what era. In what era, but certainly what part of the world. Absolutely. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Okay, so uh, I've kind of spit out a bunch of of knowledge at you. Uh, Does any of that make any difference in terms of how you're going to approach this case? Just before we go there, I mean, I I would ask if if there was one test that we could do and we we have all this information and in that might be helpful um i would suggest that i would order one spe- one test to see uh because it has a short differential and it has a high yield uh i would wonder if my colleagues what they would do uh to assess this man you only have one test sky's the limit sky's the limit i would order a tee 
Okay. He's got a murmur. He's got congenital heart disease. And he has fever of unexplained origin. And endocarditis is surprisingly common. I'm going to have a very hard time picking one test. Um, but where my brain was going for this, I would do the, the CT. CT. Chest, abdo, pelvis. Yeah. Steph, what would you do? I would see if we already have one objective abnormality, which is the lymph nodes in his chest. Yeah. And I would see if we could access those. So I would do the same. But if I if I saw non-specifically, if, and in this person non-specific, if we didn't have that information, I think I'd order a ferritin. Because I think that that might be helpful if it's elevated. It won't be helpful if it's not. But if it's elevated, the differential diagnosis of a very high ferritin is a pretty limited differential diagnosis. It might guide us because we can do a lot of tests. Um, anyway, that's what I would choose. Is nobody going to go for the random liver biopsy with 15% yield? No. <laughs> no. But, <laughs> so, but just to clarify, you're saying the diagnostic yield of the ferritin would be if it was several thousand. Yes. That's a very short yes. differential. Yeah. yeah. Because I think it encompasses the infection, mm -hmm. the neoplasm, the uh, autoimmune. autoimmune. Yeah. yeah. So. So, Danny, what was the ferritin? <laughs> yeah. Danny, was there a ferritin done? Ferritin was normal. Uh, I, I don't know. It was it was elevated, but but not uh, not as high as uh, would be diagnostic for you. So I'll tell you what I'll tell you what you got. So you get a CT scan of the abdo that shows paraaortic lymphadenopathy at the upper limits of normal. You get a CT neck that shows multiple small lymph nodes and an FNA of the submandibular lymph node is performed and that comes back benign. He has a CT sinuses that shows mucosal thickening and polyposis, a CT head that's negative, a cardiac CT that is negative for endocarditis. He has EBV, uh, CMV, HSV, mycoplasma, HIV, syphilis, Bardinella, Q fever, hepatitis, toxo, and legionella, which were all negative except for his EBV, which actually had a viral load of about 16,000. Infectious disease weighed in on that, and they said that's actually not really that high. It's unlikely to be of any clinical significance here. And that was just kind of pushed to the background as, as unlikely to be a contributor. He ended up having a bone scan, which was negative. Hematology was then involved, and they did a bone marrow biopsy, which showed reactive lymphoid aggregates. They did peripheral blood flow cytometry that was normal and a smear that was also normal. We involved immunology because of the uh, potential for thymic hypoplasia of various levels of penetrance in these patients. His IgG, IgA were normal. His IgM was a bit low, but they felt he really didn't appear to be immunocompromised. And they felt that um, the thymic hypoplasia, however, to, to whatever extent it was, wasn't really playing a significant role here. Rheumatology was also involved, and he had an ANA, ENA, RF, ANCA, cold agglutinins, cryoglobulins, which were all negative. Anyone else that you'd want to pull into this party? But it's, it's very interesting. This is a man who has his presentation that we've heard. He has lymphadenopathy. He has an EB viral load. Uh, he has a family history of lymphoma. And we biopsy the bone marrow. We also, uh, we got an FNA? But, but we haven't, I mean, we, we seem to, 
the, the abnormalities that we've seen, or at least that, that, that radiologically have been seen, are the areas that we haven't touched yet. So what, would you, what are you proposing we uh, look for now? Or what would you choose to do instead? I would choose to biopsy a lymph node. I was going to say, Dan, he's had a very, very thorough workup. You know, we've cast the net really wide, and now we've pulled up the net to see what we found. And we have found some abnormalities, primarily, as Dr. Kasten's saying, the lymph nodes um, are slightly enlarged, um, and that's been a persistent issue. And his EBV viral load is high. And I would ask the infectious disease team when they say that it's not significant, not significant for what? Um, It sounds like it's probably not significant for acute mononucleosis. That's not his presentation. But is there something else that this could be alluding to? There are some lymphomas that are associated with EBV. And that would be the specific question that I would pose to the infectious disease team or perhaps a lymphoma specialist or an oncologist. Now, can I be a bit of a, oh, sorry, can I be a bit of a stickler here just because I want to make sure that the way I told you the, the data was accurate because although he has lymph nodes, none of them are enlarged above the upper limit of normal. Does that, uh, you're right, his initial chest x-ray showed lymphadenopathy. His initial CT showed lymphadenopathy when he was admitted to hospital initially. But his follow-up chest x-ray, uh, I believe, at admission to hospital this time, didn't show any lymphadenopathy. And now you have CTs up and down that don't show any enlarged lymph nodes. They just show the presence of lymph nodes. So um, not, o- not only is it going to be difficult to convince either interventional radiology or plastics or whoever you're going to try and get to do the biopsy to do it, but it's actually going to be pretty hard for them to get a a worthwhile sample because these are all small lymph nodes. How do you roll that into how you're going to approach this case? I think part, part of my issue at that time and now even hearing this case again is, is trying to get a handle on this guy's immune status. Like, you know, so we, this came up on a case not that long ago. You know, is what is this guy? Is he more immune deficient? Is he more autoimmune? What is his immune competence? And so, when we see either an infection or an inflammatory condition or a malignancy in someone with DeGeorge syndrome, do we expect more adenopathy or less adenopathy or more splenomegaly or more fever? Like, part of it is that I just don't know. Yeah. I don't understand DeGeorge syndrome. I don't have any experience with DeGeorge syndrome. And so I, I, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm thrown off a little bit, you know, like it's like I'm playing tennis left-handed. I'm just, I don't have my usual uh, radar to, to understand someone's illness. And so I'm just uncomfortable. But, but I, I and I agree. And that's what we said at the beginning that you, you need to, to look at the possibilities of the George syndrome because we don't see it very often. But I'll go back to the the initial discussion about fever of unknown origin and how we would uh, solve the case previously, which we don't use very often now because technology has changed so much. But one of the things we would do at the end of an investigation when it was negative was do a laparotomy. 
And that was part of, I don't know if that was a criteria, but that was certainly the end game. And I don't remember very often playing that card, but a couple of times I certainly remember the discussions uh, because that's what the literature said at the time. But I think given this situation uh, with no, uh, still no diagnosis and still someone who's symptomatic, I think it's a discussion that needs to take place. And laparotomy may not be the, 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 what we choose, but certainly some form of uh, surgical intervention, not just uh, uh, radiologic intervention. And I think um, the fact that we've brought up a couple times now our discomfort with, well, not discomfort, but unfamiliarity with the George and how it might affect um, the presentation of, of things that we otherwise are familiar with the presentation of, um, I wonder if at any point we considered involving medical genetics or uh, any subspecialty that has more familiarity with these patients' presentation and the heterogeneity of their immune compromise or otherwise. That's a great suggestion. So actually, we did do that. So th- this was this was by phone consultation with um, Children's Hospital Genetics, and we actually talked to Children's Hospital Immunology as well. Because to to re, to paraphrase um, what Steph was saying, we wanted to know if someone with DeGeorge syndrome has upper limit of normal lymphadenopathy in the context of a possibility of thymic hypoplasia, should we correct for that and essentially look at this as a gentleman with diffuse large lymphadenopathy? Now, the the reason we were asking that question was because in discussion with hematology and some of the other services, essentially the argument was he actually doesn't have lymphadenopathy. He has some spotty, shoddy lymph nodes here and there, but he doesn't have lymphadenopathy that would make them, at that point, concerned about anything like lymphoma, which is characterized, of course, by lymphadenopathy. So that was the question that we posed to them. And... um those services that we called got back to us and said, yeah, we have no idea. So there were, and, and looking through the literature, there's not a clear answer to that question either. Um, you know, paraphrased would be, do people with DeGeorge syndrome have smaller lymph nodes, uh, related to their thymic hypoplasia? So I don't know the answer to that, but that is, I, I think, kind of what you're getting at there, Janet. That's where we were left with. What is everyone's next step? What do you actually want to do at this point? I think you've had most of the investigations that you've asked for. I just wanted to to add something, Dan. Um, you know, to Steph's point, I think he raises a really good question, which is what is considered normal? And we come across this a lot in medicine, and we often have criteria for what's normal based on, I think, convenience more than anything else. I mean, look at what's a normal body temperature and the actual literature behind that is quite scarce, but we've sort of defined it as, okay, a true fever is going to be about 38 degrees. And I don't think that's necessarily always true, but that's more of a criteria convenience for us. So I think similarly, when we're looking at lymph nodes, what is considered a abnormally large lymph node? We typically say more than one centimeter, but again, says who? I think that's just a criteria convenience that, that a radiologist needs to say, okay, above this limit, I'm actually going to say it's enlarged, and below this limit, it's not enlarged. But they've already mentioned it in the radiology report, which to me suggests something looks a bit abnormal. 
So that's a really good point. And, you know, there's so many things where we have no, quote unquote normal ranges or reference intervals. And for at least for the lab, most of those things are defined as 95th percentile for quote unquote healthy patients. So you take a bunch of patients who you think are healthy, at least on the, um, on the thing that you're trying to measure, and you measure their sodium or their lymph nodes, and you get a hopefully somewhat standard distribution, and then you take the 95th percentile. So even 5% of normal people will be at the below normal at baseline, and 5% will be above normal at ba- oh sorry, 2.5 will be below normal at baseline, and 2.5% will be above normal at baseline. And so those people, especially on measures where there's high inter-individual um, variability, and I don't know if lymph node size has a large intra-individual variability, but I wouldn't be su- surprised if it did, if his normal lymph nodes might be quite a bit smaller than a normal, uh, quote-unquote, normal person's normal lymph nodes so that, that his marginally elevated lymph nodes would be significant. But but I think, it's, I think it's a great point. I think it's a really great point. If we saw somebody, an adult, who was two and a half feet tall, that's, that's their adult stature. That they've, that's what they've achieved. They're going to be two and a half feet tall for the rest of their life. But they're, they're adults. We wouldn't use the same criteria in, in assessing that person as we would in someone who's a normal-sized adult, right? We wouldn't do the same. We wouldn't look for organ enlargement the same way. We wouldn't be talking about the same numbers. And those are the real things. Mm-hmm. So back to the original point of the George's syndrome, none of us know what the George's syndrome is. the George's syndrome someone who's two and a half feet tall or 10 feet tall or five and a half feet tall? We don't know that. So we're trying to assume that we do know that and we don't. Absolutely. So I'll give you the last piece of clinical information and then I'm going to ask you to tell me what you actually think the diagnosis is before I uh, before the big reveal. So in hospital, As I said um, before, he had multiple short courses of antibiotics that were always or usually started overnight when he would um, dump his pressures and look very unwell. And then by morning, we would stop it and we would write notes all over the chart saying, please, no one restart antibiotics under these specific circumstances, outside of which, of course, you can if if something changes. So we actually did have a period of a couple of weeks at least uh, in hospital where he had no antibiotics and he had essentially the exact same pattern of fever. So um, we felt that probably it wasn't one related to the antibiotics. He didn't seem to worsen. So we didn't really think that it was infectious by the end of his extensive workup. He'd had extensive, I think we, we had hematology come back two or three times to the same patient. So he'd had extensive hematologic eval, immunology, rheumatology, and some phone consultations, as well as ID and, of course, general internal medicine. So that is all the information uh, that you have. What do you think's actually going on here? I mean, so, I mean, at this point, I have a gentleman with uh, some risk factors and family history for um, immune dysregulation and family history of, of, of lymphoma. Uh, I have a pattern of fever that sounds like night sweats. And the only thing that we maybe have to hang our hats on is this query lymphadenopathy. So 
if I had, you know, put a gun to my head, I think I would say my number one differential is lymphoma. But I don't have any good evidence, really. No one is going to put a gun to your head. (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. Honestly, um, we've had how many subspecialists involved in this care? I'm not going to be the guy to solve it today, unfortunately. But here's here's the truth. You are going to be the guy to solve this because all of the consultants come by and they wash their hands of this case. And and that is what it means to be MRP as the general internist at uh, St. Paul's Hospital. Uh, you, you do have to make some hard decisions and make some therapeutic choices that these specialists don't necessarily uh, feel the same responsibility for. So what do you think? D- Danny, let me reinforce that. These are people who have an, emph- an emphasis in their practice in a certain area. They're not any more informed about the diseases than you and I are. Their their experience may, and we listen, but they're not the. You must know by now that um, when when someone asks you your opinion, you give your opinion, but it is your opinion, and within yourself, you know the strengths and the weaknesses of that opinion that you're giving. And I would challenge all of us to say that just because. Dr. X, who represents a specialty in medicine, comes and says this isn't so or is so, I think that that's an opinion. That's basically what I would take. And I think that those are the things that I think we need to learn. And it's not that the general internist has more information. I think the person, the people looking after this, this uh, fellow, I think probably have incorporated everybody's thoughts and have their own thoughts. And um, I'd be interested to see, since Steph looked after him, what your thought was uh, all along. So I think that you can make a diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, you know, even hearing it now, I am not sure. Like at this stage, I thought that there was still so much mystery around the DeGeorge syndrome that it was possible that we were just going to learn something new about his either immune deficiency or autoimmunity that was triggering these fevers. Um, and, you know, at several points during his hospitalization, he'd been treated with steroids and that seemed to make things better. But again, like why? Not totally clear. Um, I, you know, it, so Danny, I think will explain what, what my thinking was at that time. But I guess, sorry, I just another question that comes up in my head is in these cases, is it always important to make a diagnosis? He was too sick to go home. He was honestly like he would get so ill and he had very involved parents who were very caring and thoughtful people. Like going home without a diagnosis or a clear plan in this case, I am I am often very comfortable doing that. I am often the only one in, involved in the case who's comfortable doing it. But in this case, this was not an option. And, Too and sick. you know, and based on what Dan has, the information that Dan has given us, and and what Stefana said, that this guy turns septic every night. I mean, it's to me, it's more than fever. And when somebody has had recurrent sepsis, I, I'm my my feeling is that he still has an underlying infection, and and I would continue to pursue that um, and work with the the subspecialist on trying to see what we have potentially missed. Uh, the only thing I'd say is that these are all mediated. These every response, whether it's an infection or other, it, these are cytokine mediated responses. So. Whatever the stimulus is, it's the same cytokines. I would say that I would, I would guess that come out and cause these uh, hemodynamic changes. And uh, so, 
I think if Steph's looking after him and said he's sick and and too sick to go home, then 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 we have to make a decision because he can't stay here forever. How many nights are we going to do this, or how many whatever days? So uh, we got an answer from Janet. You think malignancy, maybe lymphoma. We got an answer from Lawrence. You said pro- you you feel it might be infection. So keep looking there. Dr. Casson, what, what was it that uh, you wanted to put your money on here? Well, I, again, I go back to the, the pieces of information we know, because we, we have all said we don't know so much about the Georgia syndrome, but the pieces of information that we have are, number one, there's a family history of lymphoma. Number two, he has EB virus, and we know that's associated with lymphoma. Number three, he's got s- symptoms that could be compatible with lymphoma, but could be compatible with everything else. And number four, I guess, is we don't have lymphadenopathy, but we have lymph nodes that are winking at us in different parts of his body. And so I would go with Janet. Okay. So here we go. January 2014, he undergoes a CT-guided lymph node biopsy of the abdominal lymph nodes. And these results saying suspicious, but not diagnostic for Hodgkin's lymphoma. He gets a complete excisional biopsy performed from paraaortic lymph nodes and the pathology says EBV-associated lymphoproliferative disorder, Hodgkin's-like. He has a PET scan done, which shows stage 3B lymphoma with lymph nodes above and below the diaphragm without other organ invasion. And he's initiated on chemotherapy and actually did really, really well with that. The uh, oncology notes ultimately describe it this way. It's probable that the T-cell immune dysfunction associated with DeGeorge syndrome together with an EBV infection may be responsible for this current diagnosis. Cool. I feel like I need a cigarette. <laughs> well, it's nice It's nice to get an answer. I guess for the patient, it would have been statistically better to not have had an answer, right? Um, but it sounds well, like he did well. I don't think so. I mean, so if we had no answer, he'd still be here. We'd still be <laughs> culturing be, be him every rent. night. <laughs> be culturing him every night, and he'd be sampling all the latest and greatest of our antibiotics. How how long was he here? I don't know, on and off for like six or seven months. Wow. Wow. Is that right, Danny? Uh, yeah, I think it totaled that by the end. Um, and I, I just have to to say that even so, so I I can tell you what Steph thought throughout this entire process. Steph always thought <laughs> that it was lymphoma until proven otherwise and was not at all dissuaded by the uh, FNA that had been initially done because that still felt like the most harmonious diagnosis based on our readings at the time around DeGeorge, the EBV viral load, the family history for what that's worth, but also his prominent B symptoms um, that we ultimately felt weren't related to an infection. So it was quite literally impossible to get people to come by to do more tests on him, given how modest the lymphadenopathy was. So we had consulted surgery many times and waited for the staff to turn over so that we could ask them again. Uh, and it took a really long time before we actually uh, found a surgeon who was willing to do the procedure. Uh, and that's actually why we ended up doing the IR-guided biopsy in the first place. I think, actually, Steph, we were talking about doing an excisional biopsy after the FNA. So 
the reason he was in hospital for so long was not because we didn't have a good idea of where we wanted to go diagnostically. It was actually because it was really hard to convince anyone that we were right, given that all of the specialties involved had made fairly convincing cases that we were wrong. So do you think that we did right by him? Do you think that he ended up getting the right care? Were we using the right approach to try and figure things out for him? Or how can we do better? I, I think one of the things, though, that, uh, and maybe this was what Lawrence was alluding to about sort of ascribing more power to people who who are felt to have more knowledge in an area, um, I think it's always helpful to reread that consultation in the light of an answer. Because you can then begin to, to take, you know, to look at the different components of how they arrived at their conclusion. And if you looked at hematology in this case, or if you looked at IDU, whoever made the made comments and who was asked to make comments, was this, I don't think this person has this, I don't think this person, ha- or they have this based on this, 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 and this, or was this, I just don't think so. And I think that's helpful. So I think it, and really when you're asking somebody to do something that you can't do, and I would assume that I'm assuming that you and Steph can't go to the OR and can't take out a lymph node. I mean, may, maybe some in, there are internists that, that that do this. I'm not one of them. No, but I'm saying that, so. When you're when we're in a situation where you're actually having to ask somebody else to do it, you have to be able to convince them to do something that they they obviously think isn't the right thing to do. So, um, power to you. Mm-hmm. I I understand the the issues, and I don't know if six months is what it takes to convince somebody or it's two months or I don't know. Uh, and I'm assuming, and Danny, uh, I don't know, you, you, I'm certain you weren't part of his care for six months, but I'm assuming there were many other people that were looking after him for during this time. So would you come back and forth, Steph, to see as, as part of his care team? Yeah. Okay, so, so you weren't looking after him for six months. No, no. But I mean, yeah, I was on on a few occasions, um, and at the beginning, I think we there was just so much time that it took me to wrap my head around yeah. what I thought was going on, and then to try to sort of solicit helpful opinions from subspecialists, um, and then to find the right procedure. It was it was just a very complicated thing. So like the most complicated most difficult case I think I've ever been involved in. Sounds It sounds like it was really frustrating yeah. from, from your point of view, especially in trying to get the biopsy, um, which, you know, it, it is frustrating when subspecialists subspecialist or uh, consulting services say, well, I don't think it's likely that this is it, so, so we shouldn't do the test or we shouldn't do the procedure. And sometimes it's just sort of, well, it may not be likely, but I don't have any more other more likely options left. And that's sort of this case where maybe the general surgeon thought that lymphoma was a long shot and not worth doing the biopsy. But the reality is you and your team had already done everything else that was in your power. So even if it wasn't likely, it was still the most least likely thing. Um, and deserve to be done, but it's hard to convince other people of that sometimes. Well, I'm sure also the, uh, I mean, I don't know enough about the Georges, but his, the, this this isn't, it sounds like 
he lives in a group home, so we see people here from group homes and, and things. So it's not like you're having a conversation that you're going to discuss with the person who has the illness, who's making the decision. Who So maybe the decision had to go through multiple layers, and that also probably complicated things. Yeah, and, you know, I think also as I, as I hear... Um, you describe you Barry describe your relationship with with specialist consultants and you Lawrence describe your sort of maybe right now at your stage more deferential relationship with them I I I see that that spectrum like over so I've been in practice now roughly 10 years and I would say that I've I've begun to own my responsibility as an MRP much more in the last three four years than I did for the first several years. At that point in 2014, I'd been on staff here only a couple of years, two, three years. And I don't think that I had the confidence Mm -hmm. to try to persuade those around me the way that I do now. I think that I I could have managed this case much better and much um, more efficiently if this man came to my care now. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I did not have the confidence to run around the hospital dragging people around saying you've got a biopsy this or that right. uh, now I would yeah. now, now I would so I've been thinking about this case a lot since uh, since we saw him and one of the things that so, so there was a, an obvious pearl for me um, who had an interest in rheumatology at the time which was that um, maybe this is a good representation of what immune dysregulation or immune deficiency can do when you are looking for diagnoses that usually have a large immune response. So maybe I should readjust my scale of what's normal, um, as, uh, as uh, Dr. Kasson was saying. I think that um, I've been trying to think about this case in terms of, was there a shortcut that we missed? Like, was there a faster way to get to the end? Um, and, you know, Steph, you've made good points about Uh, changes in your practice pattern. Um, But certainly from where I was sitting, I think all of the right questions were asked and they were asked in the right order and they were asked of the right people. So I I think truthfully that this just ended up being a really tough case that thankfully um, was ultimately solved. Well, not only solved, but actually approached therapeutically and and I don't know, cured maybe not the, but certainly managed and the patient's out of hospital. I'm assuming we're not still going, <laughs> doing blood cultures every night. He hasn't been back. <laughs> he hasn't been back. Thanks a lot, Danny. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you.